hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. This is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast, Series 1, Episode 11, Electrofishing for Snakeheads. I spent the majority of yesterday out on the Potomac River with Department of Game and Inland Fisheries, Fisheries Biologist John Odenkirk, doing electro sampling of the fish in the river. Our goal was to capture snakeheads for research and for lunch for this Saturday's Tidal Potomac Fly Rotters Spay Clinic and Snakehead Cookout. We're going to be down on the Potomac River on Saturday, September 11th, cooking some snakeheads and throwing some two-handed rods out on the river. Yesterday, we started at Pohick Bay in the Potomac River, about 25 miles south of Washington, D.C., and made our way up past Mount Vernon to Little Hunting Creek, which is a tributary of the Potomac. If you haven't been keeping up with my blog, uh, basically I quit my job as a federal consultant and I'm now doing fly fishing guiding and instruction full time. And the more I can learn about species in our river, the more I can catch fish, the better experiences my clients will have and just makes my job that much easier. So John was gracious enough to allow me to come out on the boat yesterday and photograph and videotape some of the fish that we were capturing, how it was done, and I got to see a whole lot more. So this is a basic rundown, some of the key points that I noticed, um, that I picked up yesterday. You may have seen John on the National Geographic episode on snakeheads. There's also the River Monsters episode. So I'm going to talk about some very similar items that you saw in there and some things that I thought were new to me. So uh, we're going to talk about Chana Argus, the northern snakehead. And if I translated correctly from my Dictionary of Word Roots and Combining Forms by Donald J. Moore, I believe the name means silver gape, chana meaning gaping as in their mouth, and argus meaning 
silver for the scales. So the origin of the snakeheads in the Potomac appears to have been located at Dogue Creek, and they dispersed from there. Dogue was the epicenter. They were brought in by one of four methods, either a religious ceremonial dumping, brought in as a food source where people could catch the fish from the wild rather than having to import them, brought in for sporting, which is what I'm mainly concerned with, or people had them as pets where they were just too voracious to keep in a fish tank and people just dumped them. The distribution appears to be from Great Falls all the way down to the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay and 10 miles below Colonial Beach on the bay. There's the saline barrier on the southernmost point and the physical barrier and geographic barrier of Great Falls on the northern end. It appears that the snakehead fish have been riding freshwater flows down from the Potomac into the mouth of the bay where the bay and the river meet. John Odenkirk explained that this happens in flood periods. We had the three large blizzards last winter, so if you've got a huge mass of fresh water flowing down into the river, it's going to go left and right and branch out into the bay. These fish then can take those two saltwater-free channels to areas where they previously could not get and then up the tributaries. So that's how they can get out and spread into other parts of Virginia and up into Maryland. The juveniles have a holler tolerance for salinity, and they have tested the fish in the lab to see what parts per million or billion these fish can tolerate, and they're starting to understand better um, how or when they might be able to get out into saltwater if possible. And it is undetermined if the CNO Canal, which goes from Georgetown, D.C. up to Hancock, Maryland, has snakeheads in it because they cannot electroshock the water. No gas-powered boats are allowed in there. And for electroshocking, if you're unfamiliar, it's a large boat, there's a generator on it, and then there's these two posts that go into the water on like the 1 o'clock and 11 o'clock position out from the boat, and they dangle down sort of like an umbrella with metal wires. There's a current running to each one, and if fish are near that, it shocks them, they float up to the surface, they're scooped up. It's quite loud, so if you go to my website and watch the videos, you're going to have to hear over the generators. Alright, so that's uh, origin and distribution. Let's talk about habitat and then reproduction. These fish breathe air, so they can occupy places other fish will not occupy, namely shallow, warm, deoxygenated water. Bass and other species that we're fishing for normally are going to be in heavily oxygenated water. Well, these guys don't rely on dissolved oxygen in the water to go through their lungs. They are going to gulp air from the top. So they're going to be tucked up against the shallow water along the banks as long as their backs are underwater they're happy they're going to be under structures such as docks and boats in the springtime before submerged aquatic vegetation or SAV have started to grow once the SAVs have started to grow they are going to move into those shallow areas namely hydrilla and lily pad infested areas these fish also have to hide their backs from being exposed because they're susceptible to being attacked by birds Ospreys, bald eagles, herons, and egrets. High tide is going to push them up against the shore into those lily pad rooted areas. And at low tide, they're going to come out closer to the main stem of these tidal creeks where their backs are not going to be exposed and they're not going to dry out as much. So low tide draws them to the edge of plants. High tide, they're going to be up against the bank. The fish don't appear to be territorial. Tracking has shown that they have a preference for a specific location. One fish might want to hide under one dock for months at a time. It'll venture out, but it will come back. 
I'm not sure if territorial means they prefer the location versus I was more interested in do they mind if other fish come near them? Are they going to attack bass, other snakeheads, catfish, carp that come into their area? I wanted to see how aggressive they were. Reproduction, a female can produce up to 80,000 young per year. So all you need is one gravid or pregnant female to release her eggs and you've got a sustaining population. These fish protect their youngs. You saw this on the River Monsters episode. Um, apparently, if you throw your fly into a ball of their young coming up to breathe that will result in, I guess, a trigger effect from the adults. They're going to go protect their young, and that's one way you can hook them. I'm not sure at what age they start reproducing, how long they reproduce. There's still a lot to be learned about these fish, and specifically in this watershed. I'm sure it's based on water temperatures, water fluctuations. I'm not sure if they require specific strata i don't know if they're internal or external fertilizers there's so much more i want to know and um, at least yesterday was a good stepping point i'm going to move on to feeding now um, john mentioned there are three tiers of feeding based on their size from smaller fish from minnows to medium size and larger fish i don't have a digital audio recorder now so i didn't get this key part this would um, basically allow me to match the fly size and patterns to what these fish are eating based on their size. If we want to go after bigger fish, I don't know if I threw a, a bunker pattern, they'd go for that versus a smaller fish, we'd throw on a you know a size two clouser. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hopefully the guys that were filming and taking notes, they got that down because they were probably more interested in the environmental economic impact where I was more interested in the fly fishing perspective of what John was saying and from what we were observing. Their jaws extend out to engulf prey, whereas a large mouth, the mouth, mouth just opens up and they suck in things. These mouths sort of open kind of like a snake's does, like on that big hinge, and allows them to eat food items. Snakeheads can eat prey one-third their body size. So we caught a 21-inch fish, so that means they can eat up to a 7-inch pattern. They have sharp teeth on the roof of their mouth and little nubbly teeth that run along their mouth bones, or some call them the lips. The only way as of now I can think to compare that would be if you had a long, big piece of grass and you ran your thumb down from the tip to the base and you felt all those little silica barbs on there, it would sort of feel like that. Um, I put my hand in its mouth. They got that on film. Hopefully, they'll show that. But um, really sharp. I mean, if you rubbed your finger against those teeth, it's going to you know break your skin. And those teeth are angled to hold fish in place so they can just hold them and then suck them down in one gulp. The size of the fish, uh, so far up to 15 pounds. So that's about a 35 inch fish, I believe John said. So I've been fishing with 12 pound leaders. I'm gonna start bumping that up to 15 to 20 pounds. And now I have a better idea of where to find these fish. As I said, they're up against the shallows. So some of the spots I've been fishing, um, not exactly where you find a snakehead, which is maybe why I haven't caught one yet. 
And you can determine the age of a snakehead based on its otoliths. Those are literally uh, translated to ear bones. It's analogous to tree rings, where you can age a fish by cutting it open and looking at the ear bones and seeing how many years of uh, growth have accumulated. Competition for other fish, based on what I saw, the numbers and sizes of the fish from crappy to largemouth, I can say they are not eating all the fish in the Potomac and their watersheds as rumored to do so. There were fish coming up of all sizes from one inch to 20 or 30 pounds. Everything you can imagine. Um, specifically, I made a list. These are the fish that were living in the same area as the snakeheads. Carp, goldfish. Shad, a variety of shads, the little losas we couldn't identify, and then up to the big gizzard shad. American eel, gar, blue catfish, channel catfish, bullhead catfish, largemouth bass, pumpkin seed sunfish, your other sunfish species, bluegill, um, flyers, uh, white perch, yellow perch, black crappie, northern snakeheads were there, and crayfish that you couldn't imagine the sizes and density of the crayfish along the hydrilopads. The birds we saw were egrets, herons, bald eagles, uh, mallards, the annoying, obnoxious Canada geese, ospreys, were all over the place. So um, it appeared to be a very healthy ecosystem. I would not say that the snakehead is consuming everything that is in its habitat. I think nature is sort of finding a slow balance with them, and I think in the end it'll all work out. The largemouth bass are not native to this area. They're doing just fine, and same with the smallmouth bass. We went into that on a podcast I recorded earlier as an interview for Series 2, but that got deleted, so that's why I'm ordering the digital audio tape. Back to the snakeheads. Okay, so competition with other fish, don't think it's happening. I'm going to go on uh, walking on land. The myth that the frankenfish can walk on land from one food source to another. After it eats up all the food, it crawls to the other location. Body structure is not going to allow this. That is false. They have weak pectoral fins made of soft rays that would not support the fish crawling on them, as a blenny would do on mud in low tides. They could flop around left to right, sort of ungulating like a snake, but they couldn't move along across great distances, especially if there's no texture for them to rub against. Any physical topography, they're not going to get over physical structures and barriers. It's not going to happen. They are water-born fish. They're going to stay in the water. They have mucus to protect them when they are out of water. So if their backs are low, if the water's drying up, they can survive in water that is very shallow because they're breathing air. That mucus coats them sort of like a lungfish would as a cocoon where a parrotfish secretes at night to encase them. As John was holding this fish, it was just dripping with goo. It looked like Egon Spangler got attacked by that little green dude in Ghostbusters. So, um, yeah, they're not going to be crawling from one spot to another. It's just a myth. Um, great hype to make them sound like they're going to move and eat your dogs and uh, pull your children out of their playpens and gobble them up, but uh, not going to happen. Wintertime, um, these fish may burrow into mud and remain dormant. That's still uh, not fully known. We don't know the extent of what they do in the winter. Um, it's still a, a relatively new species here, and everything is still trying to be learned. The surviving uh, fish, you know, enables them as a northern snakehead to live here. They can tolerate the cold, whereas the southern ones that live in Florida cannot tolerate. So if you put them in here, they would die out. So you've got one distinct species up here. Their demeanor, 
As John, compare them to bluefish. Bluefish will purposely bite you if you put your hand near them. Snakeheads, some are more angry and aggressive than others. Mainly, they just want to get back in the water to their natural habitat. The fish we caught, uh, at first it was stunned. It didn't really do much. We were able to hold it, look at it, examine it. Once it woke up, it started flopping around as any other fish would do to get back in the water. So I don't think that you've got to worry about, uh, you know, one taking off your finger. As long as you got hemostats, um, I think you'll be fine. And I don't know if you actually need a bite tip for these fish. Um, their mouths are not like pike or barracudas. Yeah, I think that's the end of my list of observations from yesterday. Um, I thought it was a great learning experience. I got out to see parts of the Potomac that I've never seen having lived here before. Houses bigger than my condo unit. Um, people on those creeks should let us go uh, use their docks to put our yaks in. Um, I need to just go start knocking on doors and, you know, hey, uh, you know, I'll clean the goose poop off your dock if you let me uh, use it to get my boat in there. Got to see some more tidal sections, how the tide flushes in and out, and basically just got a whole new 101 on snakeheads. I hope what I learned yesterday you find interesting will help you catch more snakeheads. And if you want more information, you can go to robsnowwhite.com. That's one W in Snow White. You can click on the podcast link for some pictures and my bullet points that I read from. You can go to the blog. I will have videos up there of us electroshocking, John talking, and us examining the snakehead. Once those articles are published in the film, I will have those permalinked, and I'll get those out for the rest of the fly fishing community. So thanks for listening. Um, hopefully I'll have the next podcast on different types of water coming up soon. I've got the day off tomorrow. No guiding for me. So stay tuned. I thank you for uh, downloading. Take care. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Through the Blackwater Bayous, and in the dark Louisiana night floats a duck camp, alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. From the Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest, me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.